Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dr. Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo, and I am here with Dr. James Heathers. How My name is Dr. James Heathers. I'm from the University of Space, and I was supposed to do the introduction <laughs> this week up yours. Why is it your turn? I have absolutely no idea. I just thought it, would, I thought it would sound cool. <laughs> I thought we threw out turns, but... Oh, well, I can't remember that. That's all right. Like, well, we can't remember whose turn it is. We can't remember whether or not we're taking turns. This is perfect. <laughs> How are you? Good, good. I'm in the the middle of uh, middle of Norwegian summer, which is uh, which is always good here. It's hotter than you would expect from the picture books, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But it's it's really good hitting um, hitting mid twenties, high twenties, which is nice. Mm. Yeah. Boston Boston summer you would enjoy a lot less. Why? Because it hits the what feels like the mid fourteen thousands. Okay. It's nine hundred and seventy percent humidity. Um, People are walking around in sports jerseys, sweating, being angry. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a very bunch of four seasons town, and this is my least favorite season. You wouldn't, yeah, you wouldn't expect the humidity, but uh, yeah. uh, it's it's strangely when 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 uh, when we got here a couple of years ago, which was a second of July, so right at the very start of July, we landed off the plane, and I still hadn't fully understood what was going to happen with the climate. And we landed off the plane and got in a taxi uh, to take all our shit to the friend's house we were staying with. And I opened the window in the taxi, and the air hit me in the face. And I thought, fucking hell, I'm in Singapore. <laughs> that bad? What the... What... Uh, the Boston... Oh, I was expecting uh, huskies. <laughs> all, year, all year round. Where are my year-round huskies, damn you? Uh, it's, yeah, it's really hot. And, um, you know, you, li you live in an apartment. Uh, everything's w w insulated to stay warm because, obviously, the cold is dangerous. The hot merely makes you sweaty and uncomfortable. But Yeah. Yeah, it's charming, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Well, speaking, of, speaking of sweaty and uncomfortable, I'm, I'm, I'm stealing your segue thing. Speaking of a sweaty and uncomfortable, do you know who's sweaty and uncomfortable right now? The, uh, the the United Kingdom. Uh, I, look, let, let's put. Um, I don't want to do a politics podcast because that would just be me swearing and you trying to doing little wavy things in the chat no. window to try and calm <laughs> it down. Yeah, no, no, you may you may not compare any of those social, religious, cultural, or ethnic groups to any of those animals <laughs> in any state of inflammation. Um, inflammation is that word when I set people on fire? Never mind. Um. Specifically, uh, the, something that uh, I, I thought was extremely interesting through the process. Obviously, when you write and talk about science a lot, you see everything through the lens of science. And being removed from the European Research Council funding mm. was the central sort of scientific issue. The access simply to a large body of research money that people have come to expect is obviously the central scientific issue in uh, the 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 vote that they took. It's extremely interesting to see that uh, Oxford, Cambridge, Cardiff, uh, all of these places with large universities were really positive on staying in Europe. Of course, um, because of I mean ERC, ERC money is I have a tremendous amount of jealousy through ERC money access there's some really marvelous schemes and a ton of money and a mm. lot of really good people to work with there's some really amazing networks uh the huge collaborations of you know if you if you're australian you look at them and think oh wow being involved in something like that would be completely different i'm yeah that would be that would be an amazing thing now it the process of People from Britain being frozen out of that has already actually started because, I mean, think of the amount of money that's involved. Have you got mm. large, large consortiums who are working on different sorts of things? But think of the uncertainty. What's going to happen in two years? Can we actually use that money to pay you? Well, I've heard a lot of people um, have actually been dropped off applications now because of the uncertainty. Well, yeah, look, if you're, if you're making a series of, of applications into 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 uh, a competitive grant giving scheme then at the at the very top at the very sort of top 10 to 20 percent there are some alarmingly unimportant factors that will sometimes affect whether or not something gets funded 
Mm. Things can be pretty arbitrary when you're talking about the finer distinctions of what is or isn't worth money, right? Mm. So, <laughs> potentially not having access to the money at all is a pretty That's bad a thing one. for an application. And there are a lot of universities as well that actually have uh, almost disproportionate um, reliance on, on EU money. And you're oh, yeah. thinking, yeah, like what's what's going to happen to these institutions? So it's not just uh, you know the research funding, but it's actually the institutions as a whole that have mm. reliance. And I, I think as well, it's not just the funding, but it's also the um, the the movement of researchers. Oh yes. I've seen one of the more one of the sort of more striking images you see on Twitter are people taking photos of their labs and basically putting a circle around all the people that are from other parts of Europe. Of course. And and you're looking at this and you're seeing about. Most of these labs, about three quarters, are actually from other parts of Europe, and they're thinking, "Well, sure, you know, there's going to be an enormous amount of uncertainty." Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like just it, it's it's going to be for so many labs, it's going to make such a huge difference. Well, I can look um, in the United States. Obviously, um, people come from overseas. There's no such thing as the freedom of movement into the United States. If you have <laughs> Uncle Sam's special stamp, uh, you can come and go as you please. Everyone else gets the hose, right? <laughs> So the amount of administ the amount of administration that universities point at the task of obtaining and keeping people and getting their paperwork together is significant. Mm. It's not, and I've heard people bitch about the Australian system. This one's worse. This is definitely worse. Um, there are, I mean, for like conditions, for instance, where if you want to change visa categories, you have to leave the country to do it. Yeah, rather than the Australian version where they send you a letter going, you are now on this visa category. I mean, the little little things like that. Well, it's not a little thing; it's an enormous thing. But mm. it, it all it all adds up. Um, something that uh, Americans generally have absolutely no idea how any of that works. Um, what I imagine is a perspective that's shared by most people in England. I don't think about structural scientific things. Where do, where where does all the science happen? Yeah. I mean that, that's that's what happens when you have specialties and subspecialties and specific skill sets, and people need to be passed between countries. Did you, when you did your PhD, you were always assuming, when this is finished, I'll probably have to go elsewhere. Oh it's yeah, an accepted part of the process when you want to work in research. You go through your whole PhD thinking, when this is done, I'll get to go somewhere. Yeah. Like all the postdocs who came here from random corners of the world. And all the stuff that and all, all the stuff that they've done. And everyone else I know who's gone to all these interesting places. It is part of the culture as mm. well as part of this the sort of necessity of being able to work within a, the parameters that have been defined by your previous work, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So when you go from a total freedom of movement country, and I have an EU passport. When I went to Poland and I had all this trouble getting the, the, the passport renewed because it was a really busy time of year. The moment I got the passport renewed, moving to Poland to work, you, you go to the, the guy who's like the Burgermeister or something. He was <laughs> in, the, he's in the, the middle of town. I can't remember any of the official names. My Polish is still embarrassingly, embarrassingly absent. Um, there was a form. I had to fill a form out. <laughs> it, it, to get a little card thing cost 50 zloty, which is about $1.20. No. Oh. Um, <laughs> that's, that, it's not that. It's about $17 or something. Maybe 20 Uh had the card. I paid triple that for my Norwegian card. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. But, you know, yours probably comes laminated on the back of an immigrant or something. <laughs> Norwegians are all horrible people. No, I made both of those things up. Don't don't listen to me. I'm being unnecessarily vindictive. Um uh, that that was the whole process. What I'm saying is, I'm a citizen of the Republic of Ireland. I'm going to Poland to work. Get get this funny card. Well, I have the card now. Well, that was easy. Go and do your job. Yeah. So so, <laughs> so easy. That was and... the end of the story. I never heard anything from. I never had no other. I mean, the amount of administrative stuff that I had to do. I mean, it was like moving into a place. So move move into a dorm. They just sent me a bill. If I didn't pay the bill on time. I go to the post office. It was a, it was a transaction fee. Uh, like, do it like do it like that. Um, are you allowed to do it like that? Yeah, of course you are. Why? Mm. Are you? Are you allowed mm. to say you know I don't have to get any resident sort of thing? You're already technically a resident. Yeah. Yeah. Now taking all that away. What a hassle! I mean, now now imagine that you're choosing between two equivalent labs. One in 
the UK and one in the EU. And it's already further to go. You already end up going places that sane people wouldn't go to, like uh, Manchester or Birmingham. Hmm. Yeah. They don't look like the fucking sound of music, either of those places, yes? No one yeah, yeah. no one dances on any hill. I apologize to people in these fine metropolitan cities, but I've been to both of them and they're awful. Um <laughs> no offense. Uh lots of offense. So <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's a from from a scientific perspective, it feels like a huge own goal, and you can see why. I mean, they they did surveys on scientists, and they were something like eight times more likely to support remaining in Europe. Oh, way more than that. Now, uh, a lot of it comes down to the actual negotiations, because as as you would know, um, Norway hmm. has an interesting relationship with the EU. Yes, uh, it's, it you, you also the... have that other thing called a big fat ass load of money. Yeah, but here's the thing though. The only way that we were actually able to access the um, ERC funding during the negotiations that they did a number of years ago, they basically said, okay, um, you're not going to get access to ERC funding. (laughs) Of course, because it was Norway, it all came down to fish. When it came down to all the you've negotiations... You've got to be joking. When, when it came down... No, I'm serious. When it came it down to... It all came down to fish. Ah, oh, it's killing me. When Go. it came to the negotiations, um, basically, uh, if they wanted out, if, if, if they wanted to have no, no part of the EU, they would have sunk their fishing industry. So to be part of the overall European market when it came to their fishing industry, um, they needed to make a few concessions. And one of those concessions, and, and as well in order to actually access the ARC, one of those concessions was the freedom of movement of people. Mm-hmm. So any part of the EU, you can come and work in Norway. That's fine. But that was something they had to do. Originally, they were like, no, nah, we, we don't want people from other parts of Europe working here. We want to protect, protect jobs for locals, etc. But they were like, cool, if you want to save your fishing industry, uh, if you want to have access to the ARC and a whole number of other things, mm-hmm. you need to have open access to people and they're like fine we want to save our industry we want access to these funds and that's how it happened and it's going to be exactly the same for um uh for for you know for for britain as well in the sense that um they're going to have to make some concessions which i don't think they're going to make because that was the whole premise of leaving they might but there's still that uncertainty there yeah the 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 way that i heard bureaucrats describe that the like the center of the process there is that now everything where you you meet a accepted existing standard for things that are in trade negotiations etc mm. uh they all now have to be renegotiated and there aren't enough lawyers in the world there's like, there's like three there's like three in there because they all they all move to brussels Oh well, yeah. Who who do they work for now? Then, if they're in Brussels, exactly. I assume yeah. that they are working for in in some other context for the yeah. EU. Yeah, yeah. It's um, that's a real it's a real problem on an, an on an ongoing basis, and uh, I I don't know. It's a obviously there's been a lot of other really disturbing and un- uncomfortable sort of stuff going on but in my m- one of my ways of handling something like this and I think I think that's a really terrible decision one of my ways of handling it is to restrict what I know about it the one particular <laughs> domain no, so I don't the more you I read about spend... it the more depressed it makes you yeah well I mean it, that that goes certainly for just the just the science once it's just just the, the scientific stuff by itself, and well, the, people, I, I, a, a lot of people were saying, a lot of people were saying, um, "Oh, never mind. We'll negotiate an agreement like Norway has." <laughs> no, will you fuck? <laughs> that's that's not going to happen. I I can't see it happening in the in the same way at all. No. Yeah. Um, just because a, a similar agreement exists doesn't mean you can walk into it. Um, and uh, I, I think I, it's the whole the the precedence thing as well. Because if um, if concessions are made, then you're going to have other countries which are going to try something similar, and and a whole host of other reasons as well. Well, yeah, there's a bit, there's a lot of social reasons being rolled into. Um, yeah, the uh, 
there's a, an article about this in the the Huffington Post, which I never read, but someone, a scientist I know on Facebook, linked me. Um, I don't know much about Horizon 2020. Do you know mm. much about Horizon 2020? Yeah, that's that's a big framework where they do all the funding. It's a huge. But uh, here's the excellent thing EU about framework program for research funding. The, the best thing about this program is that it actually supports researchers across the entire lifespan. So, of course, it's got support for PhDs. It's got support for oh, postdocs. It's got support. And labor- it, yeah, so startup funds, with new, startup new, funds laborat- new laboratory stuff. Oh, that is so lacking everywhere. everywhere. I would be so angry if I was a researcher in the UK and I lost access to that. It basically... Because it's once some you, asinine once you got- amount of money. It's like 80 billion euros, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, but you, yeah, I mean, it's 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 an enormous amount. But the good thing is, once you hop on that train, you know, if you hop on that train in an early career context, it you're far more likely to get another grant from the ASC as mm. well because you're already, you know, you're already proven in that sense. But it's amazing because you have that support, you know, in in Australia, and I'm assuming in the US as well. Cool, heaps of PhD fellowships rolling around, quite mm. a few postdocs, and then nothing and, yeah a big <laughs> and then you're a PI. hole yeah. yeah yeah it's like how do you people how do people make the jump but uh in um in the eu there's a lot of support in between for and yeah it's, that it's, is that is greatly to their credit because that's yeah. that is short all over the world it's not just a you know it, it, it's not it's not a problem that's confined to places that we've worked that's what people generally think of as the real hump yeah. If you can get past that, then a little sort of like the Hunger Games, the odds are slightly more <laughs> in your favour. Um, That's a metaphor for I, academia. I saw Hunger one of Games. those. I saw one of those on a plane, and now I know enough about it to get the details, or I'm going to annoy young people. Which <laughs> obviously, actually, yeah, obviously yeah, for that... me is just perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Let's um let's take a break and we'll be back soon. All right, let's do that. Welcome back to Everything Hurts. Um, thank you for all your support. We really appreciate all the tweets that we get. You can find us on Twitter at at Hertz podcast uh we've had some tweets recently from at kid pixo who was telling us that italian coffee is the best in in relation to um a recent mm. episode where we were talking coffee oh. um uh, yeah. would that be an italian gentleman by any chance he he did actually um uh mention that he was italian so there is a bit of bias there mm, yes a, a, a little bit a little bit of a bias um <laughs> um <laughs> I he he has he has a point. Um, we've talked about this before, and you said something I agreed with, which is that normal coffee in Italy. If you walk into a cafe, like Bogo standard cafe, whatever, whatever McFucks, uh, here is brown stuff in a cup, uh, and you get one espresso standing and up, and course. it's one year. I love having coffee standing up and it's one euro and it's fantastic uh, it's not amazing out of this world much of the time because it's very difficult to do it like that and you have to have it with sugar because of the because of the roast most of the time at least i do i almost never have coffee with sugar but consistently more or less everywhere it's very good i agree yeah um you can't i mean there's truly award-winning coffee in australia uh, and it's very well known all over the world. Uh, I met baristas in Poland who would tell me all the time how much they wanted to go to Australia and make coffee in Australia because it's awesome. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's obviously very gratifying. And there's good coffee places everywhere. There's some extremely fancy ones in Uncle Sam Town, but obviously here most of the coffee is poison. <laughs> uh, it's served in an enormous cup with a strychnine chaser just to get the taste out of your mouth. <laughs> Um, on road trips, I have 
Uh, this, oh, this is that I have the the feeling like I've debased myself somehow, and I'm not fussy <laughs> about stuff like that. I would gladly eat a roadside burger or random chart or anything <laughs> you can get my hands on. You got some guy on the side of side of the street who's frying a banana with a broken <laughs> stick over a fire. I'll try it, but American coffee makes me hate the fabric of reality. <laughs> Uh, I will often go, there's one place in town here that's uh, reasonable and they make extremely good coffee. Um, and except for making it myself, which obviously I do all the time, I will mm. literally cross the entire city of Boston to get coffee from uh, this place downtown. That's yeah, worth it. Um, cool. Should we, should we, uh, should we say, should we say nice things about them? Can we, um, can I, can I, can I, I mention them? Is it, does that constitute product placement? Oh, I should no. be getting money off them. Go, go for it. No, okay. The place is called Barrington Barrington Coffee. There you go. Um, yeah, it's near the it's near all the museums downtown, uh, just down from the Harper and Brewery. It's easily the best place to get coffee in this town. And to my lasting happiness, I discovered it the first few days I was in town. <laughs> and then everything else, oh, are we going to be in that neighborhood? Do you know what's in that neighborhood? What's in that neighborhood, James? Barrington. <sighs> Gotta have it. Perfect. Yeah. Well, Kevin, Sorry, you, excuse me. I, I, you, you, this is what happens when you talk about coffee. Um, I've well, already well, had I, several buckets full today. Damn, uh, I've had two of these. The, the cup. The, the cup. I also had a fair bit of uh, a fair bit of criticism leveled my way for my criticism of Norwegian breakfasts and coffee as well. So. Um, Norwegians drink more coffee than anyone else, so from memory, it's quite palatable. Do you have you had the coffee with salt? Is that a thing? Uh, um, not, not 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 that I know of. Ah, oh, I think I think that's a Norwegian thing, and maybe somewhere else in Northern Europe. Yeah. I'm getting it all but, mixed together. But the, uh, the thing is, it, it's actually quite similar to Italy in that the um, if you go to a cafe, the Bogo standard coffee hmm. is actually pretty pr- pretty good. Well, you'd hope so. Yeah, um, at least at least a filter coffee. I can't um, imagine. I've never really been anywhere. But you're talking about Australian breakfast. You mean? I I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, it's yeah, basically yeah. it's basically with, with breakfast. If it was, I mean, is it hard to go to a Norwegian cafe and get a proper eggs Benedict with onion jam and microgreens oh, and shit? You're killing me with real with real actual sourdough baked by oh. a hippie with a beard the same morning. That kind of you, you're yeah. talking about that kind of breakfast. I mean, you're yeah, a, you're yeah. a fancy man. I assume that's what you like to eat. <laughs> it's it's good stuff, and I miss it, but that's all right. Oh, you can make all that stuff yourself. Breakfast isn't hard. Exactly, exactly. So yes, if you um if you have any um strong thoughts about coffee or breakfast, tweet us. <laughs> we continue. Should do, we should do can, a food podcast. We should. We, we could should. Do a, a, I could do a food science podcast. That'd be easy. That'd be super interesting. But yeah, please tweet us at Adherds Podcast. You can also contact us on um on on Facebook as well. Just search Everything Hurts Podcast. And uh, iTunes as well. You can uh, you can rate us. Um, give us a few oh, stars. Did, um, the we had a we had a terrible iTunes review, didn't we? Oh, we did, didn't we? I yeah. was so amused. Oh, I hope that guy's still listening. Hello, random angry man. You're very fu- oh god. Um, why do I find things like that so funny? What did what did they say again? Um. The only the only thing I thought was uh was there was a, at one point in time where we were uninformed. Now I think we're quite well informed. Sometimes it doesn't come out very well. It's the whole <laughs> yeah. idea of uh it, it's a whole the whole idea of uh, maintaining the spontaneity. I mean, we could prepare things and read them off a piece of paper. I don't think it's really the same. No. Um, I, a lot of people listen for kind of Australian and shit talking nostalgia reasons. So obviously the, the spontaneity of it is probably something that's worth keeping. Or you know we yeah. could do a, a lot of background and then read it out to each other, which probably has less appeal. Um, I don't know about uninformed. The rest of it's almost certainly true. Um, yeah, I am a loudmouth. That's obviously a problem. Um, <laughs> There's a <that> loudmouth. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. I don't I'm, I'm putting other people's criticisms in now. Um, the one thing I did figure out. Look, sometimes, uh, occasionally through the week. Uh, I eat very little food in a day. Yeah, I have uh, five, six, seven hundred calories. It, uh, I, I actually quite like this. It's not a sort of like oh, it's for weight management. It's for it's for everything management. Um, it also saves you an enormous amount of time. Yeah, because yeah. I've 
cook formally most of my meals a lot of the time. I'm not going to stock. I'm going to actually cook lunch if I'm at home. I actually cook dinner. I get a, you know, I, it's not a household where we get takeaways and stuff. We cook everything all the time. Um, I chew gum on days that uh, I chew gum on days where I'm not eating any food. And it goes kind of into the background, and I forget about it completely. And you're like, oh, what was I eating? I don't think I've ever eaten during a podcast. Why the hell would I eat something? Um, oh, I was chewing gum. Yeah. So I'm not going to chew gum on the podcast anymore because I did listen back to it, and it does sound a little bit like there's someone in the background walking over a flooded basement. <laughs> and that's that's not ideal. No, not for a podcast. No. I'm not making you look bad by association. Something normally handled by your face. <laughs> but I, I, was, I can't believe I missed it. I mean, I think during the podcast, I, it just sort of went into the background. I and then, um... think it's probably the fact that you... I mean, we, we produce these fairly quickly. You Relatively don't sit quick. around and go, uh, what do we need to do in post-processing to make it all gorgeous? Because, um, you know, this is we're knocking out an hour's worth of stuff. If you went through and edited it, you'd go mad. I'd never expect you to. It would take it would take a long time. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so there was uh, there was some, I think it was a few episodes ago. Yeah, I'd, I'd assume. I'd assume so. Mm. Uh, well, look, I mean, iTunes, you, you, they don't have comment threads. So you can't go and yell at the guy. Um, uh, if you're thinking of being horrible to someone on the internet. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's perfectly valid. Perfectly valid criticism, frankly. Um, I mean, have you have you ever heard anyone accuse me of being a blowhard before, Dan? A, a blowhard? I love that word. <laughs> Not, don't get all internet on me. You know what it means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, there you are. So, you know, it goes both ways. Ta-da! <laughs> now, when it comes to um, when it comes to comments, uh, we've had one listener who's actually taken advantage of the fact that on SoundCloud you can comment on a specific part of the episode. Oh yeah, um, Super that's handy. very yeah. When someone someone drops their new mixtape, how do you do, fellow kids? <laughs> uh, people people mark those up all the time. I like this part. Er, great, and other internet-based commentary. Yeah, so we've had uh, we've had one of our we've had one of our listeners, um, Omnen Omnesres. I, I think that's could... Jordan. Hello, Jordan. Jordan. Yeah, so Jordan's actually um, added some uh, some great comments, or you know, all the way through a few episodes as well at specific time points. So if there's something that you um, oh, I've got to go read those. Yeah, have have a read. Yeah, it's super super cool. Um, and particularly when it came to our episode um, episode thirteen, ac- academic horror stories. He shared what a number of other people have shared when they've spoken to us over social media or emails that mm. hearing these stories, as terrible as they are, actually makes me feel a bit better about my situation, that I'm not doing that bad myself. I have heard that so many times. Mm. I've, look, I, will, I will estimate how many times. Maybe 15. Yeah. Uh, everyone likes to... It's just simply the, the fact that... Uh, academia in general, research in particular, has a tendency to be alarmingly specific to your supervisor, boss, university, country, environment, etc. You can have all the money in the world. It's like, oh, they'll all look at all the poor investment bankers scraping to get by. There's no such thing. Look at all the extremely rich people uh, bagging groceries at the supermarket. There's no such thing. But there's people in research who are richest creatures and they don't know what to do with all the money and there's people who are scraping by heart and the people who are managing okay there's people in countries that are terrible that have horrible structural problems there's people in countries who've got all the money in the world um there's amazing people who are bosses and there's people who are fucking demons <laughs> so it's really difficult to have a non-specific view of wait what's what's happening everywhere and you also, when you when you start out, you go through an undergraduate education that's a lot of the time specific to the same kind of environment, and then you and then you just sort of flip it over and and stay there specifically. Your broader expectation of what's going on is really diminished, and a lot of people don't talk about the internal environment of what's happening everywhere else. Now, academics proper often do 
this sucks, that sucks, this is good, that's good, come here, get this money, do this stuff. We're always talking about places to get money. We're always talking about who to work with, what's come out, what's good, what's bad, etc. Oh, why don't you mean this is why reason I'm always doing jokes about socialism? Because you have it. And when it comes to the funding, it's really good. It's very good. <laughs> I have a lot of Norway jealousy in case no one's managed to pick that up. They probably have so far. So academic horror stories are, 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 are the most extreme expression of this, oh, I get to externalize what's happening to me kind of thing. Mm. And I like telling them. Uh, I like the context. And people really seem to dig it. Mm. So I collect them and I, I write about them in other contexts that, that aren't this. And I want people who are in the position that I was in a while ago to know what to expect. But more than that, how to react when it doesn't go right, what to do, what you can fix, what you can't fix. What are the signs that everything's going to be fine? What are the signs that everything's terrible? And not to feel crazy like you're in this situation. Oh, no one's ever been in this situation. This poorly managed before super important yeah i I, yeah i i hate that um the idea that there's really super educated people who care a lot about what they do who would rather find out stuff for the furtherment of some collective idea of human progress rather than make shit tons of money with their life the idea that these people are disposable pisses me off yeah so you know I'd prefer them to be less disposable. We should actually get to a topic. Yeah, we are, we are running right on. Well, I I sent you I sent you a paper. You uh, did a few days ago that I found on Twitter that I thought was fascinating. And Great gonna, paper. Uh, I loved it too. Go. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna post it online, obviously. But the title of this paper is "Less Is More: Psychologists Can Learn More by Studying Fewer People." Now, there is an inflammatory uh, title if you ever read one because the past few years, all we've heard about is sample sizes are too small. We uh, need... <laughs> yeah. More people. More people more, need a more big people. shake. Give it a big shake. Like, we're, we're having all these, all, all these papers, um, you know, with, with these enormous sample sizes, which are great. But what that does is that, um, that leaves people with not many resources out in the dark. Yeah. Mm, these can people happen. Who, these people who can't um, test these enormous amounts, amounts of people. But um, this has actually been something that um, that we've sort of been saying between ourselves for the past few years, that if you're going to be doing some sort of experimental test, you should either be testing a lot of people and um, get as much data as possible, not necessarily as that, that carefully, or you should be studying less people and getting really detailed measures. Now, this fits within that, but at a more extreme level because it's saying, let's even study one person. Hmm. Yeah. So, the, 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 the gist of this is um, that we've actually, you know, it's talking about these single case designs where you're intensively studying one person over repeated measures. Rather than thinking, can we replicate this experiment? The idea is, can we actually replicate this finding in one person? Mm-hmm. That's now that's you know it's it, it makes sense, but it's not, that's not an idea I've, I've actually heard of before, as as a serious attempt at science anyway. Uh, I suppose I, I I think it happens a great deal. It's just a lot of the time it's not proposed as a model. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now the moment you sent me this paper, I thought of three individual circumstances straight away where this is entirely appropriate as the milieu surrounding how people do the work one obviously my stuff the the vast majority of the time if you've got oh jane do you run a small sample experiment yes i ran a small sample experiment the same person came for six visits all six visits have their own individual baseline all the changes over the really very well controlled six visits uh, are graded changes so the amount of internal comparisons you have is the important thing. The amount of the amount of comparisons in general, the amount of measurement points that you've made is infinitely more important than the number of people. If you take one person and you measure them 200 times, generally you have a good description of the person. Yeah. Yeah? So if you're taking a relatively well-understood effect and 10 people and you take 8, 10, 12, 15 measurements, you have made 10 times 
the amount of measurements, but if you take 10 people, right? So mm -hmm. let's say uh, let's say we take 12 measurements of 10 people. It's 120 measurements. Now, if you're going to do a poorly controlled between subjects experiment, you will have less actual measurements than that. You have the point in time where you actually create a data point will be less. Now, yeah. when it comes to making claims about stuff like this, something that I've never been 100% certain about, and someone who is uh, a statistical pedant or one of those annoying people who either knows everything or thinks they know everything, if you're listening, Alex Holcomb, I'm pointing my finger right at you, you incredible <laughs> smartass. Um, I have absolutely no idea how to justify using a power analysis, a large within subject series of comparisons like this. Because this is only really one step up from we take well, one person, we take 100 measurements. So well, we take 10 people and we make 10 internally controlled, very well validated measurements in an environment that we control uh, extremely rigidly. You know what I'm like with experimental control. Yeah. Really but irritating. Um, so, I, I, I really like how precise you can be when you do this. The, the precision of actually being able to describe the effect in the first instance. You, you, there are so many factors between people that are almost impossible to measure or understand or predict and when you throw them away and you have a well characterized thing that is being measured in a small number of people many many times you can form a remarkably good series of observations very fast mm. so that's the first that's the first environment the second environment obviously is psychophysics where people do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of individual trials and they'll get the people in the lab, the only people who are motivated enough to do these experiments, which are crushingly boring. The only people who are motivated enough are people who already do the research themselves. So everyone ends up doing each other's experiments. So people who work in visual psychophysics will present a paper and they go, well, we did this four, five, six hour experiment where people did 1,200 trials each. And here is me. And there's Martha, and there's Sarah, and there's Tom, and here's all our individual data points. Look at the effect. It works. Get it up here. So that's even more, that's an even closer version to, to what's being described in the article, which is a, a, a colossal amount of observations within one single person to try and mm. validate the model. And of course, the exact analog of this in the real world is quantified self yes yes people are doing this already yes exactly the only this is why i really bullish on the whole quantified self problem it's exactly the same people who are doing uh, different forms of athletic training who are measuring their hiv mm. over time i know people who have hundreds of their own individual measurements hundreds multiple hundreds Treasure of the same observation yeah now, even if your data has a certain amount of internal inaccuracy, but your, your hardware is not very good, you only have, you, you have exactly the same environment. And people do understand enough to actually, some people who are doing measurement with a thing that plugs into their phone first thing in the morning have better experimental control than psychologists who are using the same things yeah. with $20,000 obviously it's not better than an actual physiology lab or someone who knows what they're doing but there are people who are publishing research where the people who do quantified self in their bedroom have a more valid series of comparisons than mm. people who are publishing research in this area do you think that's you 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 work in this stuff is that fair i think it's fair okay so the only problem with quantified self stuff is the fact that you get to you make a series of observations sometimes the observations are really interesting you get right to the very end of that and then they're forced to interpret the data yeah. and yeah. that's the really hard part and then you end up with people going well i think the magic thing is doing the magic <laughs> sympathovagals it's the sympathovagals they are following me around mother I, it's not the sympathovagals. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's not raise our blood pressure on that one. Um, so, in in general, 
I've been to a couple of, I've been to Quantified Self meetups and I've been to Quantified Self conferences. And I've always been surprised. I've always been surprised when it comes to physiological measurement stuff. Because I'll get there and everyone there is someone who does this measurement for fun and has a bunch of money and is interested in it. Someone who makes a device or a device manufacturer for people who are doing QS sort of stuff. People who have ancillary related projects like artists who use physiological measurement stuff. Um, or people who work for device and med tech companies who are trying to do market research stuff. Yeah. How many people are there who actually do physiological measurement who want to talk to people who love it? They don't know much about it, but they love it. It's the most interesting thing in the world to them. It's their hobby. They're doing this for free. How many scientists are talking to those people? I guess it'd be basically no one, just you. Me. Around. Yeah. What, a, what, a, what an opportunity. Super, super happy to. If anyone, oh, gents, I've got, this, I've got this quantified self thing that I do, a measurement. What does it mean? I've got, all the, I've got this series of these observations. What, what's happening here? Um, my speculation will be a little bit better than yours because not not heaps i don't have some kind of sage knowledge that you know I go, ah well yes let me interpret the music of the spheres for you bollocks um you can't set up the observations that you can't set up yourself are really difficult to interpret you don't actually know what you're looking for you know you can't focus a question in the first instance and it's really dangerous to get data that someone else has collected in someone else's experiment and go ah well i'll hypothesize now everything will be fine now it all exists great way to lie to yourself so uh that actually was one long coherent thought excuse me for dominating the conversation um i was super happy when we had the episode uh, one or one or two ago where you talked for most of the time <laughs> that was awesome that just came out last week actually on oxytocin oh good yes excellent yeah. we should do more neuropeptide stuff Let's so i can i can sit here and nod and you can uh, declaim what should be weighty truths, but it's probably just verbs. Look, with, uh, with this, with, with this whole idea, though, uh, I just don't see it actually getting uh, getting accepted because there's been so much of a push of look, 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 let's increase our sample sizes. So as much well, as I suppose, it, like let's increase our number of meaningful observations. It's like let's increase our sample size is a reflection on doing between subjects or such. Uh, yeah, but there's still those calls for uh, for within subjects research as well, or crossover designs. Um, Why not just increase the amount of measurements with the people? Yeah, exactly. So I think quite often when you come to actually proposing these big, um, I'm not going to use the word paradigm shifts, but when you when you when you're using these big shifts in approaches to research, I think the ones that don't work. Okay, let's look at Bayesian statistics for an example. Okay, he he have a thing which I generally agree with. Yeah, yeah, people are coming out going, oh, you know, p-values are the worst thing ever. If you use p-values, you're an idiot. Stop using p-values. <laughs> to the point where you have this journal who banned p-values. And, and then you're having, you're having people who are submitting papers without p-values and they're getting all huffy on, on, on Twitter because, oh, but they didn't accept my paper because it didn't have p-values. Of course they didn't accept your bloody paper because it didn't have p-values. What you need is a gradual shift. So in this circumstance, what I'm doing with most of my papers is I'm presenting both p-values, both base factors, and explaining why both, uh, you know, um, mm. are useful. So rather than we actually put, coming out, uh, John's paper, you put base yeah. factors, you put base factors into that, base factors and p-values. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I thought that was I thought that was a good addition. Yeah, uh, yeah. to and that I, to that specific problem because you you you're, you're saying at the time we have a different reflection on how this should be measured. What's actually relevant. We have, two exactly. central, we have two central measures. We have one, what we consider to be the, the primary dependent measure. Uh, and we have two competing ways of understanding the independent variables. Yep. Tailor-made for Bayesian observation. Exactly. Exactly. So you have, you have this situation here um, where I, I could have just ignored p-values and, and gone on and gone with the, um, the Bayesian statistics, but it wasn't the right approach. So rather than actually coming out and saying we need to do, I mean, and on top of actually having this um, single observation, they're also suggesting, well, when you're using signal, signal observations, you don't even need traditional statistics, which is true. But can you imagine submitting a paper, N of 1, and no stats? Like, it makes a hell of a lot of sense, but it's just not <laughs> going to happen. 
So I think when it comes to actually changing perspectives, the best thing to do is to slowly change how people are doing things. So mm. if I was to see a paper, if you were to submit a paper which had, you know, what people would assume to be a good sample size and you had repeated observations with the same participant, people would be really impressed. Mm. Whereas if you just did a paper with N of three and a lot of repeated measures, people are going to go, come on. Mm. What, what, one of the most useful um, oxytocin papers to come out within the past few years, in my opinion, was a study which was actually looking at lumbar puncture and oxytocin levels. Okay. We have mentioned before that um, peripherally measured oxytocin in the blood. Blood's fairly easy to collect. Saliva, yeah. Even or, easier. Yeah. Even easier. Even easier. Um, but that's running on, under the assumption that peripheral levels reflect central levels. Yeah, we don't actually know what central levels are like. So along came a researcher and took a lumbar puncture. It was an N of two, mm-hmm. I believe. Interesting yep. data, but everyone says, there was a paper, by the way, N of two, blah, 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 blah. But it was super interesting. <laughs> we need to have this kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's a when you obviously I read a lot about methodology primarily, and there's a, a central observation that's really really obvious when you think about methodology all the time. And it's the fact that measurements are not the same. Now that sounds totally facile when you put it like that. Measurements are not the same. Well, different things are different. Well done, James. <laughs> Have a cookie. What I mean is, let's talk about let's talk about it in terms of HIV. Yep. Uh, I had to review papers i've criticized some papers in the public domain previously who's saying uh we performed an intervention for several weeks we you know bought people a puppy trained them to hug some other asinine thing like that um and then one morning two months later we took their heart rate for two minutes and then looked at a transform of the variant of variants of that now, that's one measure. There's plenty of other research where we take every single heartbeat for a day, chop that into five-minute periods, throw out all the bad ones, and then use the various parameters for five minutes' worth of observations in a day, chopped up into uh, a, 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 number of, a number of different variables. But if you, I mean, how many five-minute periods are there in a day? You're doing, you're doing the math thing again. Oh, man. sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, I said I wouldn't do that. Okay, there's 12, there's 12 in an hour and 24 in a day. 288. Yeah. Right? Almost 300. That's uh, yeah. And so a lot of the time, though, I mean, you can collapse all of that into one single individual point thing. If it's cleaned properly, if you've got the right algorithms, if you know what you're doing, if you work in an electric card, not hard. So, one person's doing a two-minute measurement in the morning one time. Someone else is doing 288 equivalent measurements back-to-back over the course of an entire day. It has a circadian cycle, Mm. uh, which has its own uh, relevant internal changes. It has its own own individual changes in errors, in error rate. Uh, it doesn't just have one measurement anymore. It has a lot of it has a lot of different appropriate internal measurements. But there are places where you can find people who will treat these things as equivalent. It's like it's we measured crazy. we measured the heart. How did you measure the heart? Well, <laughs> within that is contained multitudes, mm. and obviously uh, the less is more kind of thinking on this would be for a basic experimental model is less people, more observations. Well, even thinking about it from a just an economical or an economics perspective, you have X amount of money. You can do, mm-hmm. uh, let's say, 100 experimental sessions. Yep. You're much better off doing a lot of sessions on 10 people rather than doing two sessions on 50 people. Yep. Now... There's obviously, look, there's drawbacks to this as well, and we haven't talked about the drawbacks yet. What's the most obvious one? Well, the first thing that comes to your mind. I know we're what thinking if, the same thing. What if you have some, what if you just pick one weird person? Freaks! My what favorite thing. 
Ah, uh, yeah. Um, look, uh, <laughs> my initial thought is, well, that's not a problem. Then continue, continue to study them and write a paper on the freakography but, but, of it all. But that, that's what they said, that, <laughs> that variance is interesting. That uh, itself is interesting. Yeah. But the thing is, but no, no. But what you would do is you would have like super strict inclusion exclusion criteria. Hmm. Coming back to the context of heart rate variability, if you were going to me- measuring one person when they come in, you would do perhaps a full twelve lead to figure out is there any weirdness going on in hmm. the ECG signal, full medical workup, all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, yeah. Relatively healthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then yeah, you would yeah. include them. I mean, there's still a chance they're going to be weird in some full history work. But that's the thing is that you can find out you, you when you've got something that's observably repeatably weird. You need to notice right at the start and then pull the pin. Yep. Thank them for their time. Give them the money anyway and shunt them on. You know, it's not their fault. No, uh, it's just it's just one of those things. And that's you know that's it's what it is. Um, I had twenty people in a tilt experiment uh, at the end of the PhD, because we're drawing from a sample of young, healthy people in Australia. Three of them had some kind of uh, non-sinus rhythm because uh, one was a one was a gymnast. Yep. One was a swimmer, and one was a rower. Now, all of these things have got you know. Very high level gymnast. intense activity over time. Yeah, he was a he was a gymnast as a child. He had a a, a resting heart rate of forty five or something wow. um, beats per minute. I, I tested and, uh, so many rowers of, at Sydney. Yeah, uh, There's so many rowers. Rowing is obviously quite popular, but the thing that you do when you row is you your heart rate spends a very very long time at the very top of its aerobic threshold. Um, and I'm this is a completely un controlled observation but that stuffs things up as far as normal basic behavior self sort of conduction that can screw things up pretty badly i don't think in any problematic way it's just the fact that you know muscles get harder hearts change the way that they depolarize and i saw an awful lot of garden variety weirdness from people doing rowing or sports like rowing mm. you too so, so, so three out of 20 of your participants yeah who would yeah, that, that's that's. Ba- I, I would have guessed about two out of twenty, but um, that, that's pretty close. I just got lucky, yeah. Um, yeah. and you, you you throw them out. Mm. It's it's what it is. I mean, they got they got their credit for coming into the thing. They had a another experiment. They had to eat food and, and drink water and do the thing. Like, well, this is fine. Look, I can't run the thing. Uh, it's not your fault. Here's a screenshot of all the interesting stuff that happened. I'm going to email that to you. Um, there's supposed to be food and drink for the next experiment. We can't do the experiment if you want it anyway. Um, have all the credit. Mm. Um, I now have nothing to do for the next two and a half hours. Um, we don't have any beer, but uh, you can hang out if you want. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, not their fault. Mm. You know, people, they show, up on, they show up on time and physiology is not what it could be to make a good measurement environment. So, eh, do what you want. Mm. Um, I... The the thing look from a from a uh, management from a human perspective, when you run an experiment with people, it's something that's not really represented in this. I have seen so many observations in cognitive or social experimental psychology, where some bored research assistant will say, "Oh, come in, sit there." Fill out your details on the thing. Start task one on the computer. When you finish with task one, proceed to task two. And then your experiment is completed. And then we have to do a follow-up. And then... And people are shuffled in like cattle. They fill out their sage observations on the human condition. Thirty people at once. Yeah, and they they you know they 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 write down all their deepest darkest secrets and tell you how anxious they are and fill out a a, a lot of experimental questionnaires and do tasks etc. Uh, at which point in time you can question depending on the individual model you can question their motivation. Uh, you can question their effort. You can question what, what the, the 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 way that they're making decisions about things that they're not sure about. Which is why I'm hugely skeptical about this um, MTurk and online questionnaires. I would really like if I could do physiological measures on MTurk, it would be useful. Because yeah, 
physiology is physiology. Yes, because also no, no, because there's lots of things that you can do with passive attention. Yeah. Where you sit there and you look at the thing. And if you give me the physiology, I can tell you whether or not you're looking at it. Yeah? Either you're looking mm. at it or you're looking at something completely different. It should be really obvious. Now, within that model, we can do a ton of stuff. Uh, right. I'm going to calm down. Um, I only have one more wonderful observation. Mm. I can't believe you didn't notice this. Have you have the paper in front of you? I do. All right. Look at the conclusion. Yeah. In psychology, such designs have a storied history. Boring. <laughs> <laughs> you love, you love the e. old. E.g. Uh... E.g. Boring, a history <laughs> of experimental psychology. That's unfortunate. Man. That's that sums it up quite well. I think it's a normal German name, actually, oh, really? with an okay. umlaut on the O. There's no umlaut. I don't think uh... it would be pronounced boring. That would. I think that would be, boring. Burning? No, if if there was the umlaut, it would be burning. Um, burning. Right. But um, no, the, the, there's none there. There you go. Um, well, in the in the absence of uh, er boring, uh, it's a it's look. It's a very interesting. It's a very interesting perspective. Obviously, there's mm. problems that you can and cannot answer at this with, with with this kind of model where you set up observations like this. There's things that you can and can't do. I think it's just an essential tool. So this is one of the many tools hmm. that you can actually use. Yeah, Could for be sure. For I mean, piloting naturally is done with with very few participants. So why not? But not necessarily with not not necessarily with colossal amounts of observations. Um, no. So oh, anything particularly complicated, for instance, complicated skill learning over time, something like pilot training yep. or astronaut training, small amount of people, long training period. So any of the, the research, there's a behavioral science people, sorry about that, that was a truck. Uh, there's some behavioral science people at NASA in the West Coast who have a, a really interesting procedure where they train people, it's called autogenic training, I think that's the right name, I'm not sure. If they train people not to get violently ill in spacecraft. <laughs> okay, so like when vestibular you do, training? Type yes, thing? yes, vestibular yeah. training, exactly. So you start off with six people or something and you make very well-collected, repeated observations over a long period of time. And that can be everything from physiological measurements to did he vomit on his special spacesuit. Uh, so look, it, it lends itself well to some observations more than others. Mm. So, But how well it generalizes is a completely separate question. Yeah, and that was one of the, um, the, the criticisms that even the paper actually heads off is oh, the, yeah but yeah. you're you're perfect when you do something like this you're perfectly well aware of the fact that you you're, you're not about to I, I think that people who have 60 white teenagers in a room who want to say something about everyone's emotional regulation make more of a step than someone who is studying one, two, three people who the hundreds of observations over time very quickly. Because when you are very well aware that you are studying individuals, you don't you, you you don't even have the mindset that what you're observing should generalize to everyone right off the bat. I totally you, agree. You have a you have a you are characterizing a very specific thing in a great amount of detail, and you you accept when you begin the limitations of what's actually happening. Mm. And um, I think those people are actually far more accepting the limitations than people who do more traditional testing with, with um, moderate sample sizes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, this is a, we, we, we still have very... Considering that the internet is here and that devices are very well distributed and that you can get shoes now that have Bluetooth, we still have very archaic models depending on the amount of access that we could get. You could have something like MTurk for experiments that would work very, very well. You need a proportional amount of people, you need the right kind of measurement. All of this stuff exists. It's just the fact that people don't think about building frameworks with which observations can be made. Mm. The focus is, I mean, you're building a tool. Um, I suppose it, you know when you do uh, methodology and analysis stuff, you think about building tools. What can I make that's useful for other people? That would be enormously useful. Oh, huge! Um, because I mean, the, the other thing is, if you, the thing about MTurk, of course, is that people are incentivized to finish, not incentivized to be correct. 
<laughs> so if you, but it's not, it's not as if everyone's incentive is the same. There are people who will help you do your science, and you have the the the, the need to continually fill everything with distrust and lie scales, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, is not is it could be drastically reduced if you if you tried to make. Uh, a, a sample full of people who had a, a different end in mind. There's mm. plenty of people who are interested in science. There's plenty of people who'd, who'd love to be able to help. Yeah. I mean, you, do you remember that protein folding game? Is there anything intrinsically interesting about folding proteins? A little bit. No. A little bit. Well, it's, it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle well, like it's, other it's stuff. Like the whole, but it's not um, a very uh, good puzzle. Coloring book uh, phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. So the, pretending that that couldn't work for basic physiological measurement done on a distributed platform or even normal basic task-based stuff, normal psychology stuff, social, cognitive, emotional regulation, whatever. Mm. Uh, All perfectly possible. It just hasn't been done. Because you try to hijack platforms that already exist to get... I mean, MTurk is probably great for stuff like we have a group meeting, write down all the words on a piece of paper so we have a memo. Sure, okay. You know, it's a. It doesn't require a lot of sage, sober reflection on what the people are saying. You don't have to engage with it. You just um, knock it out. Put it in. Yeah. Okay. That's. Uh, is that about enough? Yeah. Let's wrap it. Wrap it up for today. Thanks wrap for listening. Remember for to um, to rate us on Thanks all the listening. platforms. <laughs> That's how you sound in my head now. It's yeah. not. Thanks for listening. Make sure you rate us on all the platforms. Rate Dan especially. <laughs> there you yeah. are. Right, right down on all the platforms. All the platforms. Until yeah. until next week. Until next week. Bye for now. Toodles.